We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also in studio with us today is frequent contributor Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross. Good evening. And uh, I'm going to let Gavin introduce uh, our next guest since uh, there's some Englishisms involved here and I don't want to mess it up. Yes, this is Gwen Wong. She's a political scientist at the University of Warwick. Not Warwick, as Keith called it earlier. Which we just edited out. Anyway, at this university, which I'm going to avoid saying, uh, Gwen focuses her research on youth political engagement in Taiwan. So, uh, Gwen, very happy to have you on the show. Good evening. Good to see everyone here. On the show today, we've got a dose of domestic politics for you, as President-elect Tsai Ing-wen fleshes out her cabinet. We'll discuss the earthquake soil liquefaction map that's got homeowners in danger zones worried, but not because of earthquakes. And we'll be returning to the battle over regulations covering foreign white-collar workers, which just got a little bit more heated. But first, we'll be starting with international politics. And there was no shortage of news on that front this week. Let's start with the latest headline. Gambia broke Taiwan's heart in 2013. It was traumatic. No one likes a breakup. But, you know, we were just starting to get over it. More politically strategic allies in the sea, as they say. But now we find out Gambia is getting serious with someone else, Gavin. Yes, this is to do with China forging ties with Gambia. Of course, it's been 21 years since the People's Republic of China had ties with Gambia. And, of course, as you said, Keith, Gambia unilaterally broke off diplomatic ties with Taiwan in November of 2013. Now, Ma Ying-jeou, who's currently on a trip to Central America, has, according to reports, expressed his strong dissatisfaction over the decision by Gambia and China to resume diplomatic ties. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Taipei has said that its staff are now on high alert to any possible moves by Beijing to suppress Taiwan in the international arena. The Mainland Affairs Council has also been busy describing Beijing's decision to resume diplomatic ties with Gambia as being detrimental to the cross-strait mutual trust and contrary to peaceful and stable relations. And finally, the DPP, of course, which is the incoming government, says simply that it hopes the two sides of the Taiwan Strait will refrain from engaging in malicious competition in the international community, and the incoming administration will do its utmost to maintain ties with all of Taiwan's remaining diplomatic allies. That's mm-hmm. the official line across the board. That is the official line. Now, of course, I mean, when this happened in 2013, kind of knew that uh, this would be in the offing at some point. Gambia would probably be switching its uh, recognition over to China. Uh, but there's uh, some questions now, you know, with the timing of all this coming so close to uh, the inauguration of Tsai Ing-wen, President-elect Tsai. Uh, is, Ross, do you see anything there? Is there anything going on with the timing, or is that just a coincidence? Uh, well, several issues at play. Uh, it probably isn't much of a coincidence, given that the ties with uh, Taipei were formally uh, broken in, in 2013, as you said. Uh, China's race to do business and extract resources and uh, enter the agricultural markets, etc., throughout Africa is is an ongoing process for 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 China. Uh, so 
uh, it could be that the business relationships just simply matured at this time when it was necessary to establish formal relations. And we should also keep in mind that w one of the reasons why it's important for Taiwan to have relations with some of these smaller poor countries is these countries do vote for Taiwan in international forums or Taiwan's entry into international forums and organizations. And we've already lost the Gambia vote. Uh, several years ago when, when relations were cut. So from that perspective, uh, we haven't lost anything more today. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but of course, as, as uh, Gavin mentioned, we, we need to be alert for what's going to happen going forward and the potential for additional uh, diplomatic allies to leave. And, and there's, there's probably a few that are at the top of the list. One would be the Vatican. Of course, there's ongoing rumors. And I think that, that would be a, a serious blow to Taiwan. Uh, Nicaragua, which is uh, ruled by a communist government, so the expectation is that's a likely one to go. And then on the business front, um, Panama, because of its strategic position with the canal, would also be one to monitor very closely. Of course, all this all this went down to in 2013 was apparently a check. Apparently, Gambia was after a larger check. Uh, Gavin, I thought it was because when when President Ma visited and he did the push up competition with Gambia's president and and. President Ma didn't allow the Gambian president to win. <laughs> I'd go with a check. Mm. I think it was to do with money, wasn't it? Because, of course, they, Gambia wanted more money mm. for some project that it would refuse to name. And then Taipei basically turned around and said, hang on a minute. No, we're not just giving you money. Well, again, this is really part of the give and take. And, and uh, whether it's the outgoing government or the incoming government, uh, the fact is to maintain formal relations with most of these countries does require a substantial amount of uh, development assistance. And we do know in the past some of it's been stolen by unscrupulous leaders. And people do question why does the government continue to spend taxpayer money this way? But uh, as as uh, disliked or un unfathomable as it is to do business with some of these governments in, in this fashion, the reality is, as, as we were discussing, they do provide votes and, and having formal relations is a crucial part of Taiwan maintaining its status in the global community. Right. Well, uh, one of Taiwan's many ways of winning friends and influencing people all over the world. Uh, but we're going to turn things back over and take a square look at the current state of cross-strait relations. And as we just hinted a second ago, uh, the heat is really turning up as Tsai's inauguration approaches. Uh, we've been hearing over the past couple of weeks Chinese officials dropping warnings here and there, uh, saying, you know, Taiwan can't do this, can't do that. Uh, now we're hearing some stuff from non-official sources as well. Gavin? Yes, this was apparently, according to one report, they de which described him as an influential Chinese academic. Now, he's proposed penalising Taiwan business people operating in China for simply the fact that they supported Tsai Ing-wen in the election. Right. Which is kind of ironic because they were allowed to support whoever they wanted to in the election and this influential Chinese academic, of course, can't support anyone he wants to support. Anyway, this type's chap's name is the... He's at the Institute of Taiwan Studies at the Peking University. Right. His name is Li Yi Hu. Mm -hmm. He said that China should punish two-faced Taiwanese business people for mm. activities or statements supporting the DPP. He went on to say that this would be accomplished by establishing a reward and punishment mechanism that would track the statements and actions of Taiwanese business people in China and rate them accordingly. Yeah. Okay, it sounds like a bit of a reward and punishment. That doesn't like reward and punishment. I'm sure Ross could call that something else. Well, uh, 
Gavin, some commentators have, have responded to, to this academic uh, by pointing out that he, he doesn't necessarily reflect official thinking of, of the government in Beijing, which may be the case. But on the other hand, he might just be stating the obvious that if a businessman from Taiwan who has substantial operations in China had a high profile in supporting the DPP from a political perspective, not necessarily from a, a day-to-day policy perspective. Uh, I think th- it's obvious that such a business person would jeopardize his, his relationships with government officials in China. And we should keep in mind that the relationship with Taiwanese business people starts at a very local level, whether it's in a city or a province, all the way up to the central government in Beijing. So I, I think it almost goes without saying that uh, of course, if a, if a business person took a high profile supporting the DPP or supporting independence, uh, it would jeopardize his business operations in China. And to question that is, is kind of silly. And of course, this this guy, like you said, that like you said, Ross, this guy isn't high up in the Politburo in Beijing. But the fact that he said this comment, and of course, it was reported by China's basically state-owned media. So Joe Blow in the village with a Taiwan-owned factory could have read it in the newspaper. It at least sends a message. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it would certainly jeopardize someone's business relationships, and we only have to look at the past experience under the two terms of Chen Shui-bian, where business people or government officials uh, who went in and out of the business world and the government and then went back to the business world, for example, uh, or their former companies, uh, did run into trouble with Beijing for being too close politically to President Chen. So there's precedent for this. So that gives us a sense here of how the rhetoric and the heat is being turned up on the Chinese side of the Taiwan Strait. Uh, Gwen, uh, at the same time, though, you you drew my attention this week to a UDN poll uh, showing that basically tracking the highest ever recorded uh, Taiwanese identification uh, among everybody in Taiwan, not just young people, but everybody in Taiwan. Uh, So, you know, coming up on the uh, inauguration, what do you see as the significance in terms of cross-strait relations? How does that complicate things? First of all, I think we, uh, when we see the result like this, we should take very carefully not to simply assume that it indicates a further step towards Taiwan's independence. Mm. Although the UDM poll did found that did find that uh, 73% of Taiwanese people identify themselves as Taiwanese, and another t- 11% of Taiwanese consider themselves as Chinese, mm. and then another 10% of Taiwanese consider themselves f- as Chinese and Taiwanese at the same time. Mm-hmm. And this poll echoes several polls conducted before, say one or two years ago, another poll conducted by NCCU found that only 3% of people living in Taiwan consider themselves as Chinese. Mm. So we do see a growing Taiwanese identity. Mm-hmm. However, the start indicate that people would like to pursue a de facto independence? I would say no, because mm. from other polls and also this UDM poll that we will see most Taiwanese people still prefer to stay the status quo. Mm-hmm. So I think that I would like to tend to think that the incoming DPP government would take a more pragmatic approach when it comes to cross relations. Right. Yes. And at the same time, I don't think it indicates that people will support, uh, say, the incoming government to issue any pro- pro- 
provocative stance mm-hmm. um, in terms of China's um, action in, mm-hmm. in Gambia in yeah. terms of est- establishing foreign ties with, with them uh, after two years. Mm. So um, I think it's very interesting result and timing, but it would be more interesting to see how DPP can uh, maintain the momentum that with the, the have got garnered from the last two years, mm-hmm. from the previous two elections, mm-hmm. and to see if this identity uh, would become another potential pressure to the incoming government. Right. Well, that's uh, that's pretty interesting, and that sets up kind of the last point that uh, I want to explore a little bit in uh, this first segment that we're doing here. Uh, and that is, just looking forward, uh, we got kind of two tests of Tsai's cross-strait policy coming up. The first one is going to be her uh, inauguration speech on uh, May 20th. Mm. Uh, and everybody's going to be waiting to see what she has to say about cross-strait relations on that day. Uh, and then after that, uh, her handling of the oversight bill and uh, cross-strait agreement oversight bill, that is, and uh, what form of that bill she supports is probably going to be coming quickly on the heels right there. Uh, so it's it's interesting because we all do know that she's going to be walking a bit of a tightrope uh, on the one hand, not wanting to alienate her base that uh, clearly are more uh, pro-Taiwanese and identify as Taiwanese. But then on the other hand, uh, not creating any waves in cross-strait relations. Uh, hearing what you're saying right there, Gwen, it sounds like in a lot of ways, really the 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 expectations from the public don't want to hear anything to rock the boat. You don't want to hear anything too strident there. Is that is that your sense? Yes, that's correct. And also I think Taiwanese people um, fully understand that how much Taiwan has been relying on t- Chinese business. Mm. Uh, we have a lot of investment from China here. So um, I think it's very important for the incoming government to handle the course issues. But I think also when you talk about the the supervisory bill on the future course agreements, that's the consensus between shared by the government and people and the legislature. So I highly believe that the, the legislature would put it as a priority bill and then because a lot of them were elected at the wave of the pursuit of transparency in the cross-trade negotiations. Right. So I think if that's how most of DPP legislators got elected, right. including some new power party, the, the new newly elected the largest party in the parliament, mm-hmm. I think that would become the biggest achievement they would like to pursue. Right. At the same time, I don't think other legislators from other parties will have a strong view in opposing such bill because if they do, then that might create another, I don't know, backfire mm-hmm. and, and that would even further damage the momentum of the KMT, mm-hmm. which doesn't look very positive already. Well, here, here's the challenge, uh, Keith, with, with the, the two issues that you just identified, the inauguration and then the monitoring bill specifically. If the monitoring bill is agreed to and passed into law, then Tsai has to take a view on both the services agreement and the goods agreement. And if, if the services agreement um, needs to move, then you know, she has to say so. She's got to take a position on it. Right. Right? The content of the services agreement was agreed to between the two sides' negotiators in June 2013. Mm-hmm. So she can't credibly say she doesn't have a position on it. She's right. supposed to be an expert trade negotiator. So. Yeah. Uh, if the monitoring bill passes, she really needs to immediately say, now we need to move on the services agreement, or she's going to have to come up with a reason why she can't do that, which actually would 
uh, do substantial damage to cross-strait ties. Not only that, but as President Ma continued to argue during this whole controversy, it would also jeopardize credibility with negotiating trade agreements with other countries. And then beyond the services agreement, we have the goods agreement, which is under negotiation. So mm -hmm. again, if the monitoring bill is passed, is she going to then continue with the goods agreement negotiation? Mm -hmm. Or is her position, she actually is not in favor of either a services or a goods agreement. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if the monitoring bill passes, she doesn't want to proceed. Or the easy way out would, would simply be to ensure that the monitoring bill discussion in the legislative UN goes on as long as possible. Yeah. So this is going to be a very front-loaded term for her. I mean, she's, she's facing down a lot of issues that she's going to have to deal with uh, basically right away. Uh, Gwen, I kind of want to wrap this segment up uh, just asking you, uh, you know, since you have a good sense of uh, the tone of what young people are thinking in Taiwan, how much uh, how much room to maneuver do you think Taiwan is is going to have? I mean, Ross was kind of hinting at the fact that she's going to have to make some tough decisions really close right off the bat. Uh, is if you know she moved forward with uh, these bills, would she have the support to do so? Well, first of all, we can look at the timing. The inauguration would be held in May mm -hmm. on the twentieth, and the parliament will have their break in around around the end of June. I think so. When she uh, actually comes into the office, comes into office, she only has one month. She only has one month to make an announcement on how she would handle the cross trade goods and service trade pact. And I would tend to think that the goods trade pact negotiation had have not really uh, caused a lot of public awareness mm -hmm. or attention, mm -hmm. um, whereas. In 2014, we all remember that the service service pact has caused a lot of controversies. So I think the incoming government, Taiwan, would like to deal with the goods uh, goods pact first. Right. Because this is less controversial than the mm -hmm. service pact. And secondly, there is a lot of issues that we still need to figure out, uh, such as the impact of the service trade pact could have on the Taiwanese society and mm -hmm. economy. Yeah. So I think. If she can ensure that transparency will be upheld in terms of negotiations on this pact, then young people or Taiwanese people at large mm -hmm. would not have a very, very strong objection at this moment because I think she has said many, many times that every decision she made will be made based on the consensus of Taiwanese people. Mm. And, and, and let's see if she can keep her promise. Well, I don't know if, if China would agree, though, to uh, shelve the services agreement, which, again, was agreed to almost three years ago, mm -hmm. and say, oh, let's, let's negotiate the goods agreement. We'll just put the services agreement aside. I'd be really surprised if China would agree to that. Of course, there was reports last week, this week, this week or last week, these reports all seem to blurred into one, as far as I'm concerned. But apparently, <laughs> That's Be what our job does to us. Beijing has turned around and said, yes, the goods agreement has been finished, whereas Taipei turned around and said, hang on a minute, no, it hasn't, not as far oh, as we're yeah. concerned, mm. which was kind of ironic. Anyway, to move on from the goods agreement and go back to something we were talking about before, about her inauguration speech, of course, Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration speech, there was an interesting thing came out on Thursday. This was the National Security Bureau Director General, Yang Guo-chang, who said that Beijing could take three different actions against Taiwan if it is dissatisfied with Tsai's inauguration speech. Now, according to Young, Beijing will move to shut down existing negotiation channels. There you go. There's the talks on the deals done, basically. Mm -hmm. Prohibit Chinese tourists from visiting the island and take diplomatic actions. 
Diplomat. They'll, they'll steal Gambia again? I don't know, but I mean, the head of the National Security Bureau didn't go into any specifics about the diplomatic actions, but he did say that they could cut the number of Chinese tourists or even ban them from visiting Taiwan. Right. Which, of course, could be taken, if one should like to take it this way, to say that Beijing is basically starting an embargo against the island. Hmm. Well, again, these are all the, the very obvious actions that, that are within the range of things China could do. And then uh, the gentleman from the National Security Bureau omitted several potential actions that China could do, such as military exercises. And Gwen reminded us right before we began the program that this this is the anniversary of uh, China's very threatening missile launches against Taiwan 20 years ago during the presidential election. Uh, so military exercises are also another potential uh, action that, that China could take. Uh, but you know, it seems like the best route for President-elect Tsai in her inauguration speech would be to follow what President Chen and President Ma did, which was to load up the speech with as many no's and buts and withouts as mm. possible. Yeah. All right. Well, that gives all of our listeners a pretty clear sense of the stakes uh, that the Tsai administration is going to be playing their game at uh, right off the bat, right as they're getting started. But that's about as much international politics as you could want for one day. So let's bring it back to the home court. Obviously, the big news there is Tsai's selection of former Minister of Finance Lin Tran to be the premier in her administration. So, uh, Ross, who dis? Well, he has a Ph.D. from the University of Illinois. Uh, he's served briefly as finance minister during Chen Shui-bian's government, which unfortunately for him coincided with uh, a time of great challenges in the global economy coming out of the Iraq War and, and, and SARS. And he's been uh, working in think tanks uh, uh, in the years subsequent to his tenure as Minister of Finance. Uh, he's not known as an ideologue. In fact, he's not actually a party member. But having served in, in President Chen's cabinet, of course, he's identified as being a DPP supporter. Uh, the, the challenges he faces are all well known. Uh, exports in Taiwan are falling removing regulatory red tape, increasing Taiwan's connectivity with its trading partners beyond China, and whether or not Taiwan could enter TPP or other bilateral trade agreements, and really jump-starting this economy. So the question is whether or not he's the man for the job. Um, that's, that's somewhat of an unknown. I mean, we know what he's done before, but we don't know what his, his innovative ideas are for jump-starting this economy. Mm -hmm. But he did serve for four years as finance minister. That's a, Which is quite a good record for a finance <laughs> minister over the past decade and a half. Fair amount of turnaround, yeah. Fair <laughs> amount of turnaround. He's got a medal for serving full four years, really, shouldn't he? Exactly. Okay, but, but, well, well, let's take that one step further and, and say what 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 has he contributed to the policy discourse during his time uh, as a scholar over the last ten years? You you could still be visible and play an important role, uh, but this is very somewhat similar to Tsai Ing-wen. This is someone who's known as being a very uh, even-tempered person. He's not, not someone who's going to be on the talk shows every night, so that, that's not what he's been doing for the last 10 years. But on the other hand, you say, you know, what, what, what are his contributions? What are his policy papers that he's produced over the last 10 years? And ultimately, Gavin, this, you know, if you want to create jobs, you have to uh, inspire investors to invest money to build factories or to build R&D centers, etc. Uh, so what is the business community saying in the days since he's been appointed? Apparently the tech business, the tech sector came out and said they support him. The tech sector was a big sort of supporter of him. They were quoted as saying they were supportive. But I like the way the main, the China Times, which is a pro, one could argue, pro-KMT newspaper. One is a pro-KMT newspaper, argue anything really. It came out with a headline, and it's headline about Lin when he was 
announced the spot of Premier was... The only thing he had to say was he's giving up very high-paying jobs to serve as finance minister. His high-paying job as... As several high-paying jobs. He was mm. on the, he's on the board of lots of companies and he was earning a lot of money a year. 20 million Tony dollars. Well, that's, exactly. that's the amount. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's you a can't true, believe a true, everything you read in the newspapers. <laughs> true public servant. In the same paper, Chinese Times also has an op-ed. They praise Tsai's decision in picking Lin Chen as the new premier. Mm-hmm. They believe... Well, the, the article said that Lin Chen could potentially help the cross relations because although, like Rod said, that we, it's difficult for us to see what kind of substantial advice, what contribution he has made in the past 10 years. However, the article did say that when he was helping Tsai Ing-wen uh, as the think tank head, he made a few trips to China. Mm-hmm. And so he has a quite deep understanding about cross-strait economy and the importance behind that to China's future. And furthermore, when I think that was last year, when TSMC decided to put investment in Nanjing, Lin Chen and some, and I think including some DPP members, they they did not have very negative opinion of the about the investment. Mm. So I think it shows that uh, this time the incoming government will have a slightly different, well maybe quite different view in terms of how to handle Taiwanese investment in China mm. and how to um, how to make sure that the benefit of cross trade exchange in terms of trade economy can can be felt by the public, but not just some small circle of, of people. Uh, very quickly, before we wrap this section up, he, uh, Gwen, he's also uh, not a member of the DPP party. He's no. uh, not aligned. Do you see that as significant? I think it does. It, it indicates that the future cabinet would be not so DPP. Mm. Um, the reason simply being that I think for Thai, it's very important to create strong solidarity within the island. So if you appoint someone who is a senior DPP member, yes, you may get support from DPP legislators, but she doesn't need to do that. What mm. she does, what she needs right now is the strong support from people from the bullet camp and the green camp potentially right. yellow camp the npp mm. so uh, i think it's a it's a good pick um in my personal opinion and also it might create an image that this guy because one he's not dpp member two he from the press he doesn't seem like the kind of guy he would mingle with dpp members or go to those weddings or funerals all the time mm. so it, it does create a kind of clean image mm-hmm. to the voters yeah, doesn't come with quite all that baggage. And the premier, the current premier, Simon Jung, did turn around and say he was the A number one choice. There's a lot of good quotes on this guy this week. He's a nice yeah. bloke, obviously. People like him. Yeah. All right, well, uh, we'll leave it on that positive note about that nice bloke. We need to leave it there for now, though. When we return, we'll be talking about the earthquake map that's given homeowners the jitters, the electricity rates that are getting cut for consumers, getting a little bit of a break there. And we'll also be talking about the debate over foreign white-collar workers, which, uh, as we've discussed, is heating up this week. All that more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Russ Feingold, and Gwen Wong. Jumping back into things... That sinking feeling you're getting may not be from the ominous rainy weather we have right now. It could be because your home is on one of the areas designated as being at high risk for soil liquefaction, and thus is prone to subsidence during an earthquake. There are a lot of buzzwords that we've been hearing uh, in the news a whole bunch recently, but basically soil liquefaction, ground is shifty, gets really shifty when there is an earthquake. 
Uh, subsidence means your house sinks because the ground's too shifty, can't support the weight. All there is going on there. This has all become a big deal recently because uh, the recent earthquake that rocked Tainan, uh, it's believed that uh, a lot of the worst damage, soil liquefaction, played a role in that. Well, this week, the executive Wuhan released an interactive online map of soil liquefaction danger zones across Taiwan uh, to give a more in-depth picture of this problem. Gavin, what'd they come out with? Came out with a map, or part of a map. It wasn't even a whole map of the island. It was only it was part like of the map. It eight different places or Taipei, something? Taipei, New Taipei, Yilan County, Shinzu City and County, Tainan, Kaohsiung and Pingdong County are the only places currently covered by this map, which is basically a website you can get on your computer or smartphone and you can key in your address and check if your home is in a soil liquefaction-prone area. Did you, uh, did you win the grand prize? Are you in a red zone? Did you check? No. I checked. I'm in a red zone. Did no. you move? No. I, I'm no. stuck. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Anyway, go on. Anyway, lots of people did check. And some of the people that checked work in the real estate market. Yep. Now, this didn't quite go down too well with them. They saw these red zones and they went, ah, <laughs> well, we're going to lose our money. And apparently real estate agents are now saying that housing prices may see some short-term instability mm-hmm. for buildings located in soil liquefaction red zones. And certain real estate agents have said that they could see a 10 to 15% drop in prices. 10 to 15%? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's basically it. I mean, well, should that be compensated by an increase in prices if you're in a green zone? Technically, but apparently the real estate agents that have been quoted in the press this week haven't talked about the good zones. They've only talked mm-hmm. about the red zones. And another one, we've got another realty manager came out and she said that the potential buyers would likely take longer time to make purchase decisions and the value of older buildings would be impacted by the release of the information. Now, what's interesting here is the Interior Minister, Chen Wei-ren, has come out and he said the day that they published this, obviously foreseeing problems, he said that the information released so far is only at a primary level of precision. And he went on to say that buildings are not necessarily dangerous just because they are located in areas highly vulnerable to soil liquefaction, as in many cases, geological conditions were taken into consideration at the time of construction. Well, the people that made the Weiguan building in Tainan's Yongkong district didn't take that into consideration, did they? For example. Anyway, to counter that, the cabinet says it's now planning to introduce a six-year, 24 billion NT dollar plan to improve the safety of residential buildings island-wide. There you go. There we go. So that is the what-do-you-do-with-this-information step. Sent jitters out, but the government said we're going to step in. We're on top of it. All right. Well, we got to keep things rolling today. We've already uh, spent a lot of time in the first segment, so uh, we're going to move on. Of course, that last story, hitting homeowners in the pocketbook, but those same pocketbooks got uh, some good news this week as well. State-owned Taiwan Power Company announced the largest drop in electricity rates ever, Gavin. Yes, 9.56%. That's a big drop. It is a big drop, and I can't wait for my next electricity bill. Because it says here, apparently, that the average family... Now, I'm not a family, I'm one person. <laughs> and if it used, if average family of four, 2.3 children, mum mm-hmm. and dad, maybe grandpa and grandma, if an average family uses 330 kilowatt hours of electricity per month, they'll save 80 NT on their electricity bills. 80 smackers right yeah, there. which is good for me, because that'll cut my bill in half, literally. Cut it in half, good deal. Well, if you're wasting that much energy. But, of course, while I'm laughing about this and saying it's a good old thing for me, there are arguments against axing the electricity rates, as I'm sure Ross will inform us. Well, this is an ongoing 
political and economic issue, right? Economic because it impacts the, the household expenditures and, and uh, there are a lot of middle class or lower middle class or poor families who do have to count every dollar. So the, this actually does matter to, to many people. On the other hand, uh, we know that infrastructure investment is something that uh, Thai power is deficient at. And it's very similar cough, to the cough water. Very similar to the issues with water, and uh, they do need money to invest in the infrastructure and, and make Taiwan more efficient in, in innumerable ways. And uh, without sufficient revenue, they simply can't do that. But if they ask for more revenue, then there's a political pushback. So uh, we're not finding long-term solutions here. We're just finding a short-term uh, political solution. It was quite interesting you mentioned business because according to this chart that Thai Power have released, companies, large industrial users that use an average of around one and a half million kilowatt hours of electricity per month will see their bills cut by nearly half a million NT. Now, that's a lot of money to be yeah. sort of thrown away for a company that seriously doesn't need to be throwing money away. That's a good deal for them. Well, uh, let's pick up on that politics point. I mean, it's pretty interesting. On the show last week, uh, we kind of discussed at length uh, some of the the tight timeline that Taiwan is facing in terms of phasing out nuclear power, introducing something else. Uh, we talked about uh, natural gas last week. Uh, but, you know, Thai at the same time is pledging that ele- electricity rates won't rise. So something about this equation uh, just isn't making a lot of sense to me. And it, it does feel like politics is playing a role in a lot of this. Uh, Gwen, uh, you've been watching this. Uh, what are your thoughts there? I think it's not the best timing to cut the electricity price because it's very important for not just the business but also common people to use their electricity wisely. And with a very cheap electricity price, I think a lot of Taiwanese people do not really pay a lot of attention on how to improve the uh, electricity conservation measures. That there's no pressure install. on them. No, there's no pressure on them. Yeah. And then not to mention that, like the paper said, that uh, with the new rate, they can say maybe from 80 Taiwanese dollars to more than 100 Taiwanese dollars, mm-hmm. which sounds quite small, but then for a lot of Taiwanese people, it's not small at all. You can buy a lunchbox with 80 Taiwanese dollars. Yeah. So um, I think it's not a very wise decision from that respect because I think it's very important for Taiwan. If, if Taiwan is serious to pursue a nuclear-free homeland by 2025, such initiative is also shared by the current government and the incoming government. Mm-hmm. So... And that also reminds me of the previous rally held last Saturday, yeah. um, the annual anti-nuclear power rally. Uh, according some, to some papers, there were only 7,000 people attended, mm. which is quite small. Because I remember back in the 2013 rally, there were over 100,000 people attending. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that the public started to pay less attention on such issue? I don't know, and hope not, because it's very important for Taiwan to change their mentality, not just the business, but also people in terms of how they use their electricity. Well, let's hope that the incoming DPV government encourages people to go green. Go green. All right. Yeah, that's uh, well, they're doing their part, I think. I think they are doing their part. We move on quickly after that very bad joke. (laughs) (laughs) If only our listeners could see the smirk on uh, Ross's face after that. Yes, but we will move on. Last up for today... uh, Hey guys, Gavin, Ross, uh, we're in the news. Might want to hide those white collars, by the way. Uh, We've discussed on the show before the controversy surrounding proposals to scrap restrictions on work permits for foreign white-collar workers in Taiwan. Well, those proposals have been stalled since the new DPP-led legislature began its term, and now the latest attempts to move them forward 
I has sparked something of a backlash. Just to recap for our listeners, currently, uh, according to regulations, if you want to hire a foreign white-collar worker, uh, there's a couple of requirements you need to fulfill as a business. That worker needs to have two years of experience. They need to get paid at least 47,000 NT. And there's also some capital requirements uh, for your company. Basically, your company needs to be at least a certain size to uh, be able to hire those workers. Late last year, the Ministry of Labor proposed scrapping those first two, that is, uh, the experience requirement and the wage requirement, and replacing it with a a points-based system, basically just watering down the requirement. Uh, Now, that has not sat too well with some uh, lawmakers in the DPP. It's kind of stalled out, as I mentioned there. Ministry of Labor proposed earlier this week a trial program that would be kind of a way of inching the process forward. Uh, They said it would start in April, kind of a a way of getting it started without starting it completely. You know, kind of just moving forward bit by bit there. Bit by bit was too much for some lawmakers this week. The legislature's Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene Committee uh, responded by passing a motion demanding the Ministry of Labor scrap that proposal. Even a bit by bit, not going to have it. So this whole thing was uh, spearheaded by... DPP legislator Lin Shu Fun, and the concerns uh, that she's raising when she talks about this uh, is that these white collar foreign workers would compete with low wage workers in Taiwan, kind of drive down those already low wages, uh, and also kind of accusing uh, that this is really just a proposal aimed at uh, cutting costs for employers, so not really helping out uh, anybody other than the corporations. Uh, Gwen, so, I mean, I think that this appears to be a fairly protectionist sort of proposal. I think that's fair to say. Uh, How widespread do you think that that view, that perspective is shared in the DPP? Well, her view is not only shared by some labor groups, but also by the MPP, mm. um, the third largest party in the parliament. I think back in January, right after the, le- uh, the general elections, Huang Guocheng, the famous sunflower leader and also the newly elected lawmaker, mm. he openly opposed the amendment announced by the labor ministry. And so it shows that there might be some kind of momentum in the public in terms of against government um, to open the door for foreign white colors. And I can see where they come from because if you look at the basic salary, the, uh, the average basic salary here is pretty much low, lower than our neighboring countries. Say, I think in a survey done by 2015, the average wages a university student can make after they graduate is about 900 US dollars per month. Mm. which is significantly low. So for them, their concern is that if you scrap the requirement, the wage requirement, then which means that a lot of people can steal their jobs, mm. right? A lot of foreigners can come to Taiwan if if they are happy to get less than um, 49,000 mm-hmm. dollars per month, right? Well, I think it's, uh, it's somewhat preposterous mm. to suggest that there would be large numbers of foreign white-collar workers you know, 22-year-olds with no job experience, assuming the restriction was removed, who would be moving to Taiwan to make 30000 NT a month or whatever the, the salary is, assuming th- there's no minimum salary. So companies maybe they'll offer 30 or 35 or whatever it is, mm-hmm. 1000 per month. The idea that there'd be large numbers of young white-collar foreigners moving to Taiwan to take 
jobs at that salary level is just ridiculous. Right. Uh, and a lot of uh, folks that are in favor of scrapping these regulations, we've kind of discussed this on the show today, but we'll just for the sake of uh, re- uh, reminding everybody, the argument that they make is that uh, the jobs that would be filled by these foreign white-collar workers are not jobs that can be filled by local workers. Uh, you know, there's sets of skills that uh, foreign white-collar workers possess, you know, language skills, uh, international experience, uh, and, and the like, that, uh, you know, a lot of these businesses really need. These businesses would prefer to hire a Taiwanese worker because it's often cheaper. Uh, so, you know, they would only be hiring these foreign white-collar workers if they have to. Let's clarify a point, though, because the last time we brought this up on the show, I did get a couple of questions uh, from listeners when we talk about this, we are not talking about uh, Chinese workers. They're covered by a totally different set of regulations. Is that right, Ross? That's correct. So who do we suppose that this is uh, directed at? I mean, well, I, I guess... I, I guess that's part of the, the, the problem with the arguments of the opponents. They're not even saying who they're concerned about. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, you, you said uh, maybe the, the people who would take these jobs, foreign white-collar workers, have some skills that aren't available in the local market. But... People with those kinds of skills are not going to come to Taiwan to work for thirty or thirty-five thousand NT a month. It, it's mm-hmm. just really ridiculous. Now, maybe in the tech industry, there'd be engineers from countries like India or the Philippines, which are well known for exporting very talented right. and highly educated people, who might come to Taiwan and take some jobs. But again, I I just don't see where this would impact young Taiwan workers in in any significant way. I I think it's just protectionism, very simply. Uh, It's political pandering. It's a way to say that greater trade barriers will save Taiwan's economy, which I think is a very specious and incorrect argument. I think for us, it's correct. And some arguments provided by DPP legislator Lin Shufen, she said that if we look at in the past a couple of years, when the government opened up the door for blue-collar workers, um, they lowered the threshold of the wage requirement as well. And then what happened was a lot of labor, uh, blue, a lot of constructors in Taiwan come from Southeast Asian countries, and of course the, the wages here is a lot better, a lot mm-hmm. better than um, what they can get in their right. home countries. But I think it's very important for the public to ask, when we talk about this bill, when we talk about this amendment, what kind of foreign white collars uh, is, uh, is going to be, are going to be coming to Taiwan? Right, right. Um, I think we should look at the structural environment, the workforce environment in Taiwan, because for foreigners who work in Taiwan, there's a huge language barrier. Yeah. If you don't have certain level of Mandarin capacity, it will be quite difficult for you to even find a secretary job, for instance. Yeah. So I think it's not so much about uh, who are coming here to steal their jobs, jobs, but it's more about if such uh, amendment will further worsen the already stagnant wages that young people are suffering right now. Mm. And I think it's inevitable that Taiwan has to open the door for foreign talents Mm -hmm. in the future, in the near future, because according to some government stats, uh, starting this year, each year, Taiwan will lose about 180,000 people annually because of the aging society. Mm -hmm. And not to mention that Taiwan is suffering a huge problem of brain drain. Another poll by a job hunting website found that 20% of Taiwanese people working abroad said that they don't want to come back. So I think it's more important for government to think, how how can we do to get Mm -hmm. those people back to Taiwan 
picking up on that point, I mean, that actually, that specific point came up in the news earlier this week. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the saga with Le Cordon Bleu. They're trying to open a school in Kaohsiung, and uh, they have not been allowed to hire foreign teachers. Like, to get an actual Le Cordon Bleu certified French teacher uh, has been against uh, certain labor regulations. The uh, Ministry of Labor made a specific fix for that one thing. Now you can get a foreign uh, teacher to teach chef skills, but they've just carved out that one little area and other professional teachers uh, are still not allowed in Taiwan for a lot of other uh, professional skills. Um, and that gets exactly to what you're talking about, because uh, if a Taiwanese person wants to learn these skills, they have to go to France, they have to go elsewhere. Um, and there's no incentive to you know, learn this in Taiwan and then apply those skills in Taiwan. Mm. So. Well, it, it goes back to a core issue, which we've talked about on previous programs, which simply is... Is Taiwan is, open for business? There you go. We knew, we knew that was going to come up at least once today. We also knew it's la cordon bleu. Oh, First you corrected his English, now you're correcting his French. <laughs> I'm allowed to. Bleu. I invented bleu. one of the languages, and I come from the other country where the other language was invented, partly. You didn't, you didn't personally invent English, the language. But anyway, that is a good note to end it on. That is an excellent note to end it on. And we're going to move to our last story for today, uh, which, you know, we always like to end things out. On a bit of a lighter note uh, for our podcast listeners, this is our podcast bonus segment. Today, that lighter note is Koenja and his sweaty, sweaty jersey that apparently hey, is very popular. Hey, we don't know that it was sweaty. It might have been washed. Could be. That's the lingering question about this auction. Exactly. Anyway, this is an auction that was held this week. It wrapped up this week. In fact, it concluded on Tuesday, I believe, at noon. The auction started on March the 4th. Now, what what was the auction for? Well, the auction was for two bicycles and a cycling jersey, which were both used by Mayor Kerwin Jur, he's, of course, the Taipei city mayor, in two north-south cycle rides he made earlier this year. Now, these three articles sold for a total sum of 4.5 million NT in the online auction. The starting bid was 1 NT, just in case anyone was interested for that one. Anyway, the bicycle, which Kerr rode from New Taipei to Pingdong County, which was called a Giant Defy Advanced 1. Hmm, some big hardware there. Yeah, and he, he that, that, that's when he cycled from the lighthouses in New Taipei to the Olumbi Lighthouse in Pingdong County. Described as the Twin Towers trip, I believe. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the twin, that, was the twin, that was the Twin Tower trip. Yeah, mm-hmm. that sold for 2 million NT, that one bicycle. Now the, it's not bad. It's all right, actually. Now, the giant flat bar road bike, which is known as a fast road Comax version. Mm-hmm. Now, he Kerr used that when he cycled from Taipei to Kaohsiung in January. Mm-hmm. That sold for a 1.3 million. That sold 1, 1.3 million NT. Now, the funny thing about these bicycles is they, they've been dubbed the Twin City War Horses. <laughs> Uh, Joe riding after battle. He did sign them, though. He signed both the cycles, right. bicycles, with an indelible black marker pen. Gavin, what do we know about the winning bidders? We don't know anything about the winning bidders, because apparently the... Th- the th- and then we get to the third article, which mm. is the most interesting article. Then we'll talk by about far, the winning bidders. By far, Now, the mayor's cycling jersey, which he wore on both of these bike trips... Ooh, double whammy. ...from the north to south, sold for 1.2 million NT. 1.2 million for a uh, jersey. I'm not even sure if David Beckham's old jersey's <laughs> ever sold for 1.2 million NT, so there's good luck to the mayor there, because that's quite a staggering amount for a jersey that we don't know whether it's watched or not. This anyway, is just incredible. The man has star power. He does, doesn't he? He signed the jersey as well. Mm-hmm. He signed everything. Now, apparently, back to your question, Ross, according to this report, the three articles were bought by three individual accounts separately. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the auctioneer house has declined to reveal any further details of who the buyers were. But, of course, while we're joking about this, four and a half million NT, it was all in good favour and all in good humour. And basically, the money from this, the city government says, will be given and donated charity organisations that promote sports mm. within the disabled community. Well, uh, it, in, it, although this is an entertaining story, in all seriousness, the reason why I asked the question about what do we know about the winning bidders is I, I do th- think in the interests of transparency, it really would be good to know if the winning bidders have any business in front of the city government. Ooh, some allegations raised there. Well, no, no, not allegations, but again... I think in the, in the interest of transparency, uh, it, it would be appropriate to know. Uh, I don't know, Gwen, do you, do, you, do you have faith that this is genuine Coenja love that's being expressed in monetary form? I think to some extent he does have a big, 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 uh, big base of fans in Taipei City. Mm. So uh, maybe one of the beaters are genuine um, in love with him. I don't know. <laughs> I'm uh, about in love with him. That's a bit of a strong word. Two, I think maybe, you know, two million, that's love. Two money, million is love. Money goes to help handicapped and disabled people mm-hmm. do sporty things. So I don't think it matters who gave the money. It means that. The money will go somewhere where it needs to be put. Here's the big question that we need to answer. You have your Coenja signed uh, jersey. Where do you put that? Hey, in a glass case and you stick it on your wall. I guess. And then whenever you have people over, you say that's... that's jersey. (laughs) Well, then then that person will no longer be anonymous. No, that's that's showing it Then his friends visitors. will be going, hey, go on in, can you lend me some money? If you've got one point, <laughs> exactly. you on that. Exactly. Exactly. A couple of quid, you know? All right. And what happens after uh, the next election if if uh, Ke is not reelected or decides not to run for a second? Plummets in value. Or it goes up in value because he's the oh, first, first independent, non-aligned, non-professional political politician mayor. There you go. There you go. And it's limited edition. You can't make yeah, any more. Only one of them. It's like one of those limited edition stamps. Unless he makes any more bike rides. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to leave it there. That is it for the show today. No more uh, talk of Kowinja or his sweaty jerseys. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. If you do listen through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show while you're there. Quick question. I'm going to ask this one again this week. Uh, we are back at our 8 p.m. time slot, but uh, we are considering, still considering, going to the 10 p.m. time slot where we'd have a little bit more time to spread out, include more of our conversation on the air. Uh, but want to hear from you, our listeners, to know what you prefer. Do you prefer the shorter format at 8.30 p.m., or can you wait till 10 p.m.? for a slightly longer version of the show. Let me know what you think. You can send in your thoughts through the Facebook page or just email me directly, keith at icrt.com.tw is how you can get in touch with me. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Sayonara. Also joined by Ross Feingold. Thank you as well. Good night. And Gwen Wong. Very happy to have you on the program for the first time. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.